I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Greetings and salutations. Welcome to another episode of Coffee, the Bible, and Page. I am Paige, your caffeine-imbued host, and I do not have my coffee with me because you know what? For some reason, I just don't want a cup of coffee right now. But still, in the beginning, the Lord created coffee, and lo, it was very, very good. Today, we're going to continue our journey in uh, Joshua chapter 5. He's preparing uh, to uh, attack Jericho, his first stop in his journey into reclaiming the promised land that was promised to Abraham years and years before. So without any further ado, let's get started. There's some cool things in this chapter, some good things for us to think about. Now, when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they crossed over, their hearts melted in fear and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. Now, if the numbers uh, if the numbers are as big as I think they are, this had to be something very discouraging for these kings to see. Upwards of 600,000 people crossing the Jordan and a 40 and an army of 40,000 getting ready to move on Jericho. We're talking a huge invasion. This would be really hard to deal with. And um, I don't doubt that they were afraid because they saw the power of the Jewish God at work. It's a good thing to be afraid. Now, at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcised the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Haraloth. Now this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness 40 years, until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died, since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land he had solemnly promised their ancestors to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones that Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they hadn't been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal 
to this day. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread, roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate the food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. Uh, that was a pretty monumental event. The, uh, the manna stopped coming. 40 years of eating manna. Now it was done. A very significant event. Now, a couple things came to mind while I was reading this chunk that we just looked at. Um, first of all, he circumcised everybody, and then they had they they had the Passover. Um, these are two significant things that set Israel apart from the rest of the world, and they represent the physical and the spiritual things that set them apart. The physical, the the circumcision. Um, that was something that was very important to God. And that set Israel apart from all their surrounding nations because I don't believe any of the other surrounding nations practiced circumcision. And then, of course, you had the Passover, which was a celebration of when the angel of death passed over the families of Israel. And that set them apart because no other nation practiced the Passover. That was a very, very specific Jewish thing. Um, that was God delivering them out of Egypt. And it was the final thing that drove the Egyptian Pharaoh to let God's people go. So you have two things here, the circumcision and the Passover that they took care of before they actually started their invasion. Now, the thought that comes to mind here uh, Israel is a type of the church. Okay, so we can look at what Israel's doing and we can see, we can draw principles out from what they did and what they practiced and apply it to our lives as the modern day church. Well, they practiced circumcision, which is a physical thing uh, that made them different from all the other uh, nations around them. And the thought came to mind, what is it that we, the church, can do on the physical level that sets us apart from the world around us? We're going to find out that Israel has a propensity for wanting to be like the world around them. And God is going to deal with them again and again and again. Um, I kind of see that in today's church where we follow after what the world is doing. Now, this is not me slamming the worship world because I am a worship musician, but sometimes I think there's very little to separate what we do in our worship, music worship. There's very little that separates that from what the world would see as a concert or a performance. And I don't have any, this is not the, the, the time or the place for it, but that's a thought. What is it that we as a church, collective church can do with our music that sets us apart from what the world does? There's a thought. Let's get a little bit more personal though. Is there anything we 
as individual Christians can do that would separate us physically from the world around us? Well, the only thing I can think of is the things we say, the things we do, and the clothes we wear. I, I don't. Is it possible that we want to look like the world around us, and so many of our young men and women want to look just like the fashionistas of the world want them to act, uh, dress? I was at a uh, retreat once, and a friend of mine accidentally stumbled into an area of the camp where that had been walled off by blankets and the young ladies were changing clothes into their swimsuits and some of them were in their underwear and they and and they screamed and that guy ran out of there like his tail was on fire i have never seen anybody so embarrassed in all my life however in just a few moments later the girls came out to go swimming in the lake and they were wearing two piece bikinis pretty much the same thing as their underwear right and they didn't see a problem with that. I think that sometimes our girls dress immodestly today in the church. And likewise, the men, we place way too much emphasis on the way we look. Now, granted, we shouldn't look like a bunch of grubs. But the way we present ourselves I think there's some work that could be done there to make us different from the world around us. There's physical parts, the parts of the physical realm that we can tweak as believers that set us apart from the world around us. How we act. Um, for instance, it's not, I don't see what the Bible teaches it's wrong to drink. The Bible does teach it's wrong to be drunk. But at the same time, we're called to be a part different, separate from the world. And though we it, it could be religiously legal to drink, the question should be, should we? If you're in a if you're in a party as a believer and everybody's drinking alcohol and you're drinking alcohol, is there anything that sets you apart from them when you do that? I say not. Now I'm gonna confess straight up. I have a beer on occasion. I never have a beer in public. If I have a beer, it's in the privacy of my own home. The only other person in the room is my wife. I don't drink in public. I don't drink hardly at all. But I do like a beer on occasion. I don't get drunk. But out of respect for the fact that I think God wants me to stand out from the world around me, I won't drink beer in public. It's legal for me to drink beer. The Bible doesn't tell me I can't. But the Bible does say that I there should be something about me that stands out from the world. So I'm at a party. I will not drink alcohol, not in a public setting. Um, some people might call that hypocritical. I'm willing to discuss that. I really am. I, I understand the argument. But I'm just putting that out there as a fact that uh, sometimes I think the world tricks us into wanting to be like them, and we try too hard to be like them with what we wear, what we drink, our language. Um, words are just words. Um, but if you're in a party and you're in a room full of people 
does your language set you apart? Is there something about you that's different in the way you speak, the way you deal with argumentative people? Um, in today's woke environment, it seems like people really just want to work extra hard at canceling somebody that they disagree with. And they think that disagreement equals hatred and bigotry. Um, sometimes it's easy to get sucked into the vitriol and the anger of all that stuff. God calls us to be different in the physical realm. Just some thoughts there. Now, on the spiritual side, they had Passover. What's the equivalent of that today? Well, that would be our celebration of the resurrection of Christ on Sunday with our church. Um, the world, the non-believing world, generally doesn't see any value in church attendance, and they don't see any value in church at all. By attending church, we're doing something that is different and something that sets us apart. So just some thoughts to think about there. Let's get back to the scripture. The Lord said to Joshua, today, oh, we already did that. They've had the Passover. The manna stopped. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or are you for our enemies? Neither, he said, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then, the, then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? All right, first of all, this is probably a theophany, God in the flesh. This, some people think that this is actually Jesus. This would be Jesus, right? Because uh, he's going to command the army of the Lord. At the very least, it could be Michael the Archangel who shows up on occasion. Uh, but his answer here, when Joshua says, are you for us or for our enemies? He says, I'm neither for you or the enemies, your enemies. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I've come. It's interesting. Joshua and Israel must know their place. It's not that God is on their side. Um, it's really up to them to be on God's side. We've heard people say that before. God is on our side. Uh, we've I've seen people use that to explain why the United States should win the wars they're involved in because God is on our side. We're a Christian nation. Another subject for another time. But it is not that God is on our side, should be on our side. We should be sure that we are on God's side. That's what he's saying here. As commander of the army of the Lord, I've come. God sent the commander of his heavenly armies to take charge of the battle on earth. Joshua must take orders from him. And we're going to see that in the next chapter. And he can also know that the armies of heaven are committed to this war as later events confirm. So apparently this individual, if it's God in the flesh or an angel, um, he helps Joshua in the battle and advises Joshua in the battle. We're going to see that. Joshua does not go into this battle by himself. God doesn't say, Joshua, go do this and then not provide help. The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now the leader of God's army, Joshua, 
went to scout the nearest Canaanite stronghold. But another warrior was already on the scene, an angel or the Lord himself, a man standing. The experience is taken by many to be an encounter with God in human form, a theophany. Now, if this was, uh, I kind of think this was a theophany, I could see where it might be an, an angel, because angels are, uh, are warriors. There are warrior angels. And I get that. His command, though, to take off your sandals so the place where you're standing is holy, that sounds like something God would say. And also, up here, where Joshua falls face down to the ground in reverence, says, what message does my Lord have for his servant? If it's an angel, usually angels tell you, don't be afraid, all right? That's usually almost always an angelic thing when, when they show up, don't be afraid. That doesn't happen here. The fact that Joshua calls him Lord and he is not rebuked for that tells me that very possibly this is God in the flesh. God himself is showing up to help Joshua in the next step of his uh, plan for Jericho. So that's chapter five. It's a good place to stop. Tomorrow, we get to the battle itself. It's going to be an amazing thing, the Battle of Jericho. Hmm. Well, enough for today. This is Paige. Folks, I'm out of here. Have a great day. Bye-bye. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. Neither should my thoughts be your thoughts. You need to think for yourself.